This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Um, I'm going to concentrate on 13 to the end of the chapter, but I'll go ahead and read verses 11 and 12, and then we'll camp on 13 through 25. We'll be done with chapter uh, 2 tonight. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls let's pray father there is challenging ethical teaching in this passage it challenges us to our very core and we pray tonight that, Lord, you would speak to us by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes to this text, that you, would, that you would address our hearts, that you would give us grace to change where you're calling us to change. We pray that we would be those who live lives that are honorable, as this text says, that we might live honorably for your glory and in front of a watching world. And we pray that you would give us humility and specifically humility to those who oppose us, just as our Lord Jesus responded to those who opposed him. Lord Jesus, we pray you would be elevated in this time of teaching, and we pray that we would understand you in your way, and that by grace we might be conformed more and more to your image. 
and that tonight would contribute towards that. So speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to give context by going like way back before this passage that we just read and talk about Jesus. When Jesus came, he did not fit the mold of Messiah. He came as the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah that people were expecting. You see, Israel at the time of Jesus and at the time of this writing by Peter were under Roman rule. So Jesus came to Israel while they were under the thumb of Rome. And the anticipation of the people of Israel was that God would bring a Messiah who would throw off the Roman rule, that God would bring a Messiah who would resist the oppressor and would make his people free once again to govern themselves under his law, under his word. But Jesus didn't match the expectations. Jesus did not come to battle. Jesus didn't come as a freedom fighter. Jesus didn't come to start a holy war. Jesus came humbly, peaceably, and to die. That's why he came. He didn't come in his first coming to triumph over human authorities. He came to subject himself to human authorities and to give his life a ransom for many. And even his followers didn't get this. John the Baptist, who is the leading prophet preparing the way of Jesus, is arrested and then has to send message, uh, messengers to Jesus to find out, is he really the Messiah? I mean, if he's really coming in and is going to throw over the government, then his main prophet probably shouldn't be locked up, right? Or how about Peter, who wrote this book? At the end of Jesus' life, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter, our author here, and his follower, corrects Jesus. Jesus, you can't die. Why? Because you're going to usher in the rule and the reign of God as a king. You're here to resist the authorities, not die before them. And and that's the famous passage where Jesus then, being corrected by Peter, rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Not a high moment as a disciple when you're essentially called Satan, uh, or at least Satan inspired your speech. And then think about the very end of Jesus' life. And let's look again. This is why I'm giving all this context because of the author. Think of Peter. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus and his arrest, Jesus is praying. People, his disciples can't stand up and pray with him. He won't stay up and pray. They sleep. Finally, the guards come in the garden to arrest Jesus. And what happens? Peter pulls out a sword and swings it at the authority and cuts off one of the soldiers ears, slices off his ear. Why? Because Peter assumed that following Jesus meant mounting a defense, even a violent defense to protect the king, the Messiah. He thought he was doing the right thing. And what does Jesus do? I mean, of all the miracles, I think I would have most liked, aside from the resurrection, I would have most liked to seen this one. Because Jesus picks up said severed ear and puts it back on the dude's head and heals him. And Jesus never got frustrated 
but I would like to know what kind of look did he give Peter? I mean, it wasn't, come on, but it was, okay. Peter assumed that following the Messiah was wielding a sword. He doesn't get it to that point. Wielding a sword to resist even violently the authorities that were coming to arrest Jesus. But Jesus willingly lays down his life. Jesus willingly submits to the high priest. Jesus willingly submits to Pontius Pilate and gives his life that we might have new life. Now, fast forward three decades, and Peter is writing to a suffering church. Peter is writing to people who are marginalized and are being persecuted to some degree, and he is addressing followers of Jesus in a hostile world, and Peter has retired his sword. Peter is now gets it. Peter gets it, and he says the most counterintuitive thing imaginable to these readers who are suffering persecution. I mean, what do you say to people who are living in an environment where they are resisted for their faith, where there is government resistance to some degree against them, and it will increase later, but it's, there's government resistance against them, there is familial resistance against them, there is uh, cultural resistance wherever they look towards them. What does Peter tell them to do? In a single word, this is Peter's call to Christians. Submission. Submission. I mean, it is crazy. It is a crazy idea that when you are being resisted, that you are to submit to all of the human authorities around you. Here's what Peter's saying. This is how you represent the king. What did the king do? This is how you represent King Jesus. You do the same thing. You submit to authorities. This is how you serve as a witness in a hostile environment. You announce the good news of Jesus by freely submitting to authority, and we'll see this in the text, even ungodly authority. And lest you question that's what it's about. Look at the three points of the text in here. Look at 2.13, chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That means submit yourself. Be a subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be of the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Verse 18, servants, be subject, same command. Subject yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And he's going to go on and say, even unbelieving husbands. We'll look at that passage next week. One author said, this is as countercultural as one can get. That Jesus, that Paul teaches here, that submission to authority is an apologetic for the gospel. And here's the truth. I don't think we believe this. I don't think we really, really believe this because we are Americans. And revolution is in our DNA. And here's the reality we, above any people I know on the planet, demand our rights. 
We claim our rights. Don't you dare step on my rights. If you get within 100 yards of my rights, you will hear from my lawyer about my rights. And Jesus says, lay down your rights. And this passage teaches us, if you want to represent Jesus, you must subject yourself to authorities, even ungodly authorities. I think this is one of the hardest teachings in all of the scripture for Christians in our culture. Now, here's the thing. With a passage on submission, I don't know about you, but I can find myself saying, yeah, but. This isn't everything the Bible says about, about authority, and it's not. But I can quickly go to, yeah, but. Or, yeah, yeah, okay, but what about there's a place for what about, and I'm going to give a small nod to what about tonight, but what about's not in the text. So I'm going to primarily let this text speak of its own. I'm going to give a nod to what about because there are other texts that talk about what about, and it would be irresponsible for me to not mention anything else in Scripture because Scripture must interpret Scripture. But here's what I want to argue. I believe that the fact that many of us, myself, I'll say me, I can't speak for you, want to run immediately to the exceptions tells me we've got a lot to learn about following in the example of Jesus. Because the largest section of this passage is Peter arguing, look at what Jesus did. When reviled, he didn't revile. And so you are to act like him. It's not culturally defined It's not, well, it's a different day. He uses the example of Jesus. And if you want to be a disciple, you must follow Jesus. Fundamentally, discipleship in this passage is submission to authority, even unjust authority, to be an example of Jesus, to announce the good news. We demonstrate the good news of Christ to those around us by willingly, freely submitting to authority. That's what he's saying. You will demonstrate you're in a hostile environment. You want to be a witness for Christ? Here's what you do. You freely submit yourself to authority. And that's what he says throughout this passage. Look, one, look at verse uh, 12. In verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what are the good deeds that we're supposed to do so that the Gentiles will see us, they, and he means unbelievers here, not just non-Jews, so that unbelievers will see our good works, and seeing our good works will worship the Lord. What are those? Verse 13, be subject. Verse 18, be subject. Chapter 3, verse 1, be subject. He says, you want to know what an honorable life looks like so that Gentiles looking on say, I have no explanation for this. You must be real. It will be submission to authority. So let's look. Beginning in chapter, I mean, verse 13, submission to government. That's first of all, submission to government, submission to, I'm going to say employers because I think it's the closest application and I'll talk about it. Um, and then next week we'll look at, uh, we'll look at the whole, a whole teaching on marriage, not just submission, but we'll look at a whole teaching on marriage. Submission to government, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He starts with a broad category, doesn't he? Be subject to every human institution. 
He doesn't say, be subject to every person. He doesn't say that you are to put yourself under the authority of every human, that you are to be the uh, metaphorical doormat and that everyone on the planet should just walk on you because you're under subjection to the will, the demands of everyone on the planet at all times. No, he says to human institutions that are sent by God. Human institutions sent by him. Now, he talks about government, but he, th- this would include other institutions. I mean, what other institutions are they? Well, parents are to be, I mean, sorry, uh, children are to be subject to parents. Students are to be subject to teachers or um, school administrators. Employees are to be subject to employers. Uh, church members are to be subject to elders. Volunteers are to be subject to the leader of the volunteers, whatever it is. The soccer coach, if you're kids in soccer, then you are to honor the authority of the guy who volunteered for the job so that you can drop your kid off at soccer. You submit to that person. The PTA, you submit to the authority of uh, the PTA chairman or whatever the office is. So volunteer organizations to human institutions. And why do we do that? Look at 13. For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake sake. We do this to honor the Lord. Out of subjection to Christ, we are subject to human institutions. This is what we need to see. Out of subjection to Christ, he rules over all. So as we submit to an institution, we are ultimately submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage where he's saying submit specifically, he goes on to whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors. We don't have emperors. We do have governors uh, as sent by him. He's saying uh, to political, to governmental authority, we are to subject ourselves there. Here's what Peter is calling the suffering church to radical civil obedience. You want to represent Christ. He's saying it's a call to civil obedience, civil obedience. Notice also, that he doesn't speak, boy, this presses, folks. He doesn't speak to those who are in authority to use their authority for good. P- Paul does that. When Paul has these kind of passages, he addresses employers. Uh, he addresses fathers and husbands. Peter doesn't do that. Peter just speaks to people who are under authority and are subject to mistreatment by unjust authority. That's all he speaks to. This is radical. It's one-sided. He speaks to those under authority, those in a context where they are suffering, and he calls them to good works. Look, he calls them to, verse 12, good deeds to glorify God, and then he goes to be subject. That's clearly what he's talking about. Or look at verse 15. After he says to subject yourself to the emperor or the governor, he then says in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is the doing good? What are the good works we're called to? In this case, he's speaking of subjection to civil authorities. Uh, It's for the Lord. And ultimately, it is for an example to unbelievers. So they may see your good deeds and glorify the Lord. And so that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people. In both cases, the submission is for the good of the unbeliever that looks on and not only for the Lord. He explains that God ordains government. Why does God give government? Well, he gives government to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And when we do good by submitting to them, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does that mean? He's saying your submission 
will silence your critics. It won't silence them all, but it will silence some of them. Why? Well, here's why. Because some of the rumors that went about around the early church were things like this. They are subversive. As a matter of fact, Christians in the Roman Empire were called atheists. They were viewed as atheists because they did not worship the emperor. They were unbelievers in the deity of the emperor. And yes, the emperor was viewed as God, as a God. He was deity. Uh, here were other rumors that, that went around about Christians that were believed in the first century. They were avoided because they were viewed as incestuous because they had a doctrine of loving the brother and loving the sister. And so people in the culture took this and accused them of incest, and that stuck in some places. If you can believe this, the early church was accused, and this stuck, of being cannibals. Cannibals, because they had a doctrine that they ate and drank the flesh, the body, and the blood of their Savior, of the religion's founder. And so there was all kinds of views about them. They were subversive to political authority. They were atheists, which was subversion to political authority, because if, if, if if the emperor is a god, then not to worship him is resisting, ultimately, um, governmental authority. So what he's saying is, look, if you are out there acting all, you know, you got some kind of attitude towards everybody and you're resistant and you're rebellious and you're a troublemaker, you will confirm the rumors about the church and you won't be a good witness. If you subject yourself to authority willingly, joyfully, freely, then you will silence. They don't have a case against you. Because by your lifestyle, you demonstrate the love of God rather than being a religious jerk in the culture. That's not a biblical word, but it's in the Greek somewhere, I'm sure. (laughs) And then he gives this overall view, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So he's just said you're free, but use your freedom, uh, not for evil, but to serve Christ. So you're free, but use your freedom to subject yourself to the government. Um, Honor everyone. Love that. Give honor to every person. Then he says something higher about how you relate to Christians. You love the brotherhood. So there's a special relationship with believers. You're to love them. And then the highest call is to God. You fear God. You don't fear the emperor. You only fear God. But then look at the next statement. Honor the emperor. Please note that next to fear God is honor the emperor. It's in the same verse. Fear God and honor the emperor. See, verse 13 is your actions. Subject yourself for the sake of the Lord to every human institution. Live as someone, whether it's the emperor, supreme, or governor sent by him. Live as someone who won't be punished by doing evil. That's what the government's there for. But live as someone who, by your actions, subjects yourself to authority. But honor is not just an action. Honor is an attitude. If you're a parent, you know the verse, honor your father and mother. Your kids can um, obey external actions and not honor you in their heart, not act in an honorable way towards you. Wives are to honor husbands. We're to honor everyone, the passage says right here. So honor is something that is in the heart. I don't ever preach politics in the pulpit. I think it's inappropriate in the pulpit because whether you're on the left or you're on the right, we're here under one king, King Jesus. 
And so for the sake of gospel ministry and not to dilute gospel ministry and not to put a barrier uh, before gospel ministry, I never preach politics. My goal is that people would not know where I stand, left, right, or center, on political candidates or issues. And uh, I I intend to keep it that way tonight. But I must use some names because, uh, and this isn't political, this is biblical. You, You cannot apply Scripture vaguely. You can't just say, yes, go, yes, honor the emperor. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you, how are you doing in this category? Honor from the heart. If you are right-leaning, I'm going to say if you're right-leaning, then I'm going to say if you're left-leaning, because I hope we have both in our church. If you are right-leaning, if you are Republican, then how are you doing at honoring President Obama? Because that's what this text is about. If you are left-leaning, it's probably not very good to ask, how did you do back when Bush was president? So let me say this. If you are left-leaning, how are you doing at honoring our governor, Abbott, a Republican? How are you doing about that? If you're a parent, how would your kids answer that question? If your children observe your language would they conclude that my parents honor President Obama? That their speech is not self-righteous speech. I don't hear them judge his motives. And matter of fact, I hear his name on their lips more in prayer than critique. How are we doing there? If your coworkers or your unbelieving relatives read this passage and they evaluated your faith based on your honoring of the president, how compelling would your witness be? Because that's what he's saying. He's not just saying, be a nice guy. Don't critique the Democrats. Don't critique the Republicans. Just be nice for Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, for the sake of the Lord who put that person in rulership and for the sake of your witness before others... Honor, honor, honor. We can disagree. How many, do you know this? You can disagree and do so respectfully, gently, and honorably. And you can disagree proudly and self-righteously. Very different. The passage doesn't say agree with everything the emperor does. It says subject yourself to the emperor. It says honor the emperor. See, if my coworkers and my unbelieving family, if they evaluated how I speak about those in authority, would they see my good speech in verse 12 say, listen to his speech and possibly glorify God because of what I'm doing? Would it be possible that the, those who would critique me as a narrow-minded, bigoted, small-minded Christian would say, whoa, I'm taking that charge away from you because I've heard you honor those, your, your state governor, your president, whoever, I've heard you honor those you disagree with. And I don't see that anywhere. Or would they see me just like the world? Would they see me just like the world? I can struggle to just give free evaluation of people's decisions, their motives, or ideas. I'm not talking about just disagreeing with the policy. I'm talking about impugning individuals, not liking individuals, judging individuals. Here's a classic one, judging the salvation 
of politicians. Oh, yeah, well, that person says they're a Christian, but I know they're not. Oh, so you've peeked into the Lamb's Book of Life recently, huh? <laughs> they're not a Christian. Why? Because their view of taxes. What? Where's that in the Bible? If you hold my view of taxes, you are a believer. Are you kidding? They're not a Christian. Judging people's salvation, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm talking about, I'm talking about everybody in particular, actually. I think me, I can't speak for you, but I think we, I think Christians in particular are very poor witnesses in this category of what Peter is talking about right here. I think it's some of our worst public testimony is the way we speak and fail to honor the emperor and subject ourselves to every human institution. And I don't know who our next president's going to be, but the rhetoric ain't looking real good to me. The thoughts I'm having, some of the words I'm saying, and other Christians I'm talking to, I mean, just think about candidates who get a lot of meat. I don't know who the, I do not know who will be running. But think about the candidates that get the most media attention and tell me how are evangelical Christians speaking about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? How, how are they being spoken about? They're not in office, but the Bible says honor everyone, verse 17. And they may not be in office, but one of the other people uh, may be. And we don't just salute the uniform either. We, we can't just say, well, I honor the office of governor, but I hate Abbott, or I honor the office of president, but I hate Obama. Or maybe we wouldn't even use that kind of language. We'd say, well, I honor the office, but we self-righteously judge the man. We gossip about the man. We judge his motives. We feel free to critique him to others and jump on their critique. We feel free to read and listen to people just dumping out garbage of critique of their person. And we think that is totally fine. Oh, I'm honoring them. If you're a conservative Christian, for instance, uh, and, and if you're more of a liberal Christian, if, if maybe there'll be a conservative president next, I don't know, and I'd be saying this to you a year from now, I don't know. But if you're, whatever you are, if you're, if you're a conservative Christian, I'm going to toss out an idea. The greatest challenge in our culture to the conservative Christian witness, I don't believe, is the so-called liberal media. I believe it's the conservative Christians and our speech. I think that's what tears down our witness and political discourse. Honor the emperor. Because when people hear that, they will jump in and they will notice a difference in our lives. Some conservative Christians going to be quick to say halfway jokingly, well, Peter didn't know President Obama. He didn't have President Obama in mind. No, he had Nero in mind. Peter is speaking about someone that killed Christians. Peter is speaking about honoring someone that put Christians in the Colosseum and fed them for sport to lions. Peter is speaking about someone that required worship. And I've said this before. I don't know about what you think about any of the Democrats or any of the Republicans, but none of them are requiring that we burn an incense offering to them. Peter is saying, honor the emperor who would be ruling over Rome when Peter is martyred for his faith in a few years after writing this. 
Peter is saying, look, here's what he's saying. Anyone can show dishonor when they're oppressed, like by Nero. He's saying when Nero oppresses us, anybody can dishonor the guy. But the only person that's going to honor an enemy is someone who has been born again by the Spirit of God and looks and acts and thinks and speaks like Jesus, who when reviled did not revile, who subjected himself even to ungodly authority for the glory of his Father. And he's going to say, honor that emperor. He even describes government as punishing those who do evil and praising those who do good. And even though they did plenty of evil, evidently Rome qualifies as a government that should, we should subject ourselves to. He doesn't say, <clears throat> but in your case, Asia Minor, Rome is so out of whack that they are, they are uh, celebrating evil constantly. He doesn't say that. They punish evil and praise those who do good. And our government that we live in by God's gift is far better at punishing evil and rewarding good than the Roman Empire ever thought about being. And if those people can submit, who are we not to submit to a Republican or a Democrat, not to honor whoever we don't like that's in office or is running for office. Let me give one important side note, because this, there are, there, the scripture does say more about submitting to authority. If you are being criminally harmed, I believe based on what we're reading right here, you're not to submit to that authority. You are to submit to the governing authority that punishes evil. And I'm going to give two very specific illustrations. If you are a minor in this room, that means you're under 18, and you are being sexually or physically abused, God does not want you to think that it's his will that you submit to sexual or physical abuse. Uh, he wants that reported. Tell a trusted adult, who any adult would be required legally to report it, but to tell a trusted adult that could report that, a teacher, a doctor, one of the pastors, if you're being abused, then that needs to be reported to an authority who will punish those who do evil. You see what I'm saying? That's what the government is for, to punish evildoers. And so you don't submit to that. If you're an adult woman and you are subject to domestic abuse, submitting to your husband or to your boyfriend or whatever does not mean taking physical abuse. That is criminal, and God has ordained the governing authorities to punish evil. Okay, so that's what they're there for. That's what God has provided them for. So if I'm being physically, criminally, obviously it's a criminal act. If I'm being criminally abused, should I not report that and just take that? Is that what this passage is teaching? I don't think so. Not, well, not I don't think. I'm certain, no, that you should uh, report or help tell someone who can report that because of the very reason of what we read that the emperor and the governors are sent to do. They are sent by God to punish those who do evil. God has put them in place to punish criminals who do evil. The other exception that I want to talk about here is though we honor governing authorities, we do not obey governing authorities if they require us to sin. So Christians could not they could honor the emperor, but they could not respond to a requirement to worship him. If they were called to say, hail Caesar, and offer an incense offering to worship him as a god, they would have to 
uh, humbly say no. There is no God but Jesus Christ. Okay, so if it, when, the, when the disciples are told they cannot preach, they say, we have to obey God and not man. So there is a place for civil disobedience. There's a place to defy the authority when they require us to sin, uh, or in the other illustration I gave. But most of the places we just want to defy and criticize in our hearts, uh, no one's making us sin. We're sinning voluntarily at those moments, okay? <laughs> no one's forcing us to. Secondly, he calls servants to be subject to masters. And this perhaps is even more difficult to read and understand than the first section. Servants be subject, 18, to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So here the submission is to, uh, for a servant... Uh, that is to submit to an authority in his or her life, which is a master. Now, here's what makes this very difficult for us to read, because we read this where we are in history through the lens of slavery uh, in America. And slavery in America was evil, totally, completely reprehensible at every level was slavery in this country. And while slavery in the Roman context was also unjust, it was not as unjust. If there's, lang- if there's levels of injustice, it was not as unjust as American slavery, which we are free, uh, aware of for a couple of reasons. One is that American slavery was racially, completely racially uh, driven, and that is not the case at all in Roman servant, uh, servant status, or you could call it slavery. Um, and, and American slavery was perpetual, one generation after another. That was not true in Roman slavery either. American slavery is clearly forbidden by Scripture. First Timothy 1.10, we looked at this. Actually, when I taught on homosexuality, we looked at this because homosexuality is talked about in the same verse. First uh, Timothy 1.10, there's a list of sinful practices, one of which is enslavers. And an enslaver is someone who took someone captive to sell them into slavery. Someone who would take someone captive to sell them into slavery. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1 that that is ungodly, that is unholy, and that that is profane. It is forbidden by God, and it is reprehensible. So kidnapping uh, by race, putting someone into perpetual slavery is clearly forbidden by the Bible. Some of, uh, there were some differences in Roman slavery. There's three classes of people in Rome. One class was servants, and some of them were there voluntarily. Uh, They voluntarily placed themselves there because they had gone bankrupt and needed to perhaps pay out a debt. And while they're paying out their debt, uh, they are under the control of the person they work for. Uh, So that would be a little bit different than being captured and sold uh, into slavery. Uh, They weren't just laborers as well. Teachers, doctors, managers could all be servants. As a matter of fact, they were household servants. The word servant is used. It means domestics. They were sometimes someone who would manage an entire, you know, kind of a a, a household. Uh, They were also most of the time compensated. They were paid for their work, uh, and then they could buy their freedom, unlike American slavery. They could buy their freedom. So there were some differences, but it was still unjust. How do we know that? Well, because the passage says that they could be beaten. They could be beaten unjustly. And so he says in verse 19, 
This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So he's saying if you do something wrong and you are punished through beating, well, that, that's not any great deal. You sinned. That, that's, you know, that's no witness of Christ. Verse 21, for to this, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, for what credit is it uh, if you're beaten for you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. So while Roman slavery overall didn't have the same degree of horrendous injustice that American slavery did, there still could be injustices throughout of it, throughout it, including unfair punishment and unjustly being beaten. And so he's saying here, when that is the case, when you are, it's out of your control, just like the government, when it's out of your control and you are subjected to mistreatment, you are to do so with a respect and an honoring with good and gentle attitude is what verse 18 says. And when you do that, it's a gracious thing and it testifies ultimately to Christ. It is a testimony is what he is saying. It is different. It is something when you are unjustly treated and you respond somehow with blessing, that is Uh, There's no explanation for that. So how do we apply something like this? We don't have even this softer version of servanthood in our culture. We don't have anything like this. Um, But I think the closest thing we could talk about, and there is some jump, but I think we could talk about uh, ultimately um, employment. This is what people did full-time. They, again, could have even been a teacher or a doctor full-time, but they did that under someone who had complete authority over them until they made the money to buy their freedom uh, for whatever indebtedness or whatever reason they were there. One application would be the workplace. And so no one controls you. You can quit and find a new job. I can quit and find a new job. Um, But what, what, what is the comparison? Well, how do you respond when you are treated unfairly? The whole passage, he doesn't weigh in on, is this Roman system just or unjust? He says, if you're in it, how do you act once you're in it? That's what he says. So are you treated, when are you treated unfairly? How do you respond? How do you respond when you're slighted at work? How do you respond when you're the target of perhaps slander or resistance? How about when your boss is prejudges you, shows favoritism to someone else, lies, even lies about you? What, how do you respond when someone in authority discriminates you f- against you for doing what is right? That's what's in view in here. You do what is right and you're discriminated against for it. You are a Christian and you're discriminated against. Not that you were popping off self-righteously, but that you are living a godly life, giving a testimony of Jesus Christ, both verbally and by your life, and you are marginalized for that. That's what's going on in First Peter. What, how do you respond then? Do you respond with gentleness and respect, mindful of God, he says? Do you think about, can I take this and can I respond to the Lord and to others with a gracious testimony? Because if so, then a host, some people in a hostile world will turn around and will glorify God because they see your testimony. There's a credibility to your discipleship. You're not just like everyone else who would respond in kind, who would start their own slander campaign, who would manipulate themselves, who would go around and manipulate uh, themselves just as they're being manipulated against to try to get sides and get a political thing going at work, uh, who create their own 
kind of lie campaign going or whatever it is, would respond in anger, would, would do what it would blame someone else for something uh, that that person didn't do to get at them. You know, so whatever it is, do you act like the world or is there a respectfulness, a gentleness, a love for the Lord as you serve him that is a compelling witness? That is a gracious thing. He says, when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And people in Asia Minor who are receiving this letter were being unjustly treated left and right. Now, here's one more. I think it's the last time I'm going to do this. The other other ones were super important about, you know, what are the exceptions here? Uh, It doesn't mean that you never um, assert your rights, what is righteous. For instance, Paul is beaten for his faith in the book of Acts unjustly when they had no right to beat him. He was a Roman citizen, and they gave him uh, 40, 39 or 40 lashes, and, and they're not allowed to beat a Roman citizen. Another time he is arrested, and they're about to beat him again, and he, he puts his citizenship card up and says, I'm a citizen, and they don't beat him. That was two years ago that we studied that in Acts, and I can't remember why he did one and why he didn't do the other. I can't recall. We studied that, though, in the church. We went through the book of Acts. But there is a situation where he did not claim his rights, and there's a situation where he did. It's not wrong to claim our rights uh, at, at points. It's the attitude that is behind it. It is the demand that is behind it, as opposed to Jesus who lays down his life. It is the reviling in return to those who revile me. It is the unwillingness to forgive those who harm me and to do in kind to them. That is what is wrong. And, and Jesus says he responds in a way that is laying down his life. Paul says, as a matter of fact, if a fellow Christian wants to sue you, wouldn't it just be better to lose He says, lay down your rights. It's better to lose than what? To hinder the name of Christ by this kind of friction with believers and a bad testimony. Very concerned about our testimony. That's what 1 Peter is about. Very concerned about our testimony. It's very concerned about God's reputation far more than it is about our reputation. Um, So that's how we can apply it, I think, in the workplace. And why do we do this? Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. What? Well, the verse before says, if you do good and suffer for it. If you suffer for doing good. Verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. That might be the most anti-prosperity theology verse in the whole Bible that I can think of reading. What is your calling as a Christian? To suffer! Peter's saying to them, hey, this is bad. This is what you signed up for as a disciple. This is discipleship, is that you will be treated wrong if you identify with Christ. There will be times if the teacher suffered, so will the students. If you want to live godly for Christ Jesus, you will suffer uh, persecution, Paul writes. This is Discipleship 101. We follow Jesus, and some of the same things that happened to him happened to us. And so that's why he's saying, so here's how you you are to live. Live like him. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Christ 
suffered so that you will know how to suffer like him. Well, what did he do? Look at the next verse, 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he suffered for righteousness. He was perfectly righteous. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He didn't have to say, oh, yeah, you're going to do that? Well, let's just see. Yeah, you do that, and let's just see what happens. He didn't do that. He said, I'm entrusting myself to the one who judges justly. There's one who will settle all accounts on the last day, who will right every wrong, who will bring justice to every injustice. There is one. And he, Jesus, trusted that one, the Father, entrusted himself. He didn't have to mount a defense because he entrusted himself to the Lord. He didn't have to pull out a sword and start removing ears of those in authority, literally. He did not have to do that. He trusted the Father who judges justly. So he gave us an example, and then in verse 24, look at what he did for us. How can we live that way? That's impossible. Yes. So look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's forgiveness. He died for our sins, but look what it says next. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he died for us that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to the Father, and so that we might live like he lived. It's impossible. I have to get back at them. I have to counteract. I have to get strategically in front of them so they can't get me. I've got to get them first. I've got to intimidate them. I've got to bring the pressure. I've got to demand our rights, my rights. I have to assert myself in this situation. No, we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. No, we can subject ourselves to every human institution. We can honor everyone. We can honor the emperor. We can do good when we are treated unjustly. Why? Because he died on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died so that we don't have to live like the world. He died so that we don't have to be dead, but we can be alive to Christ. He died so that we can be different people. He died so that we can love others. That's why he died. That's what he did. He committed himself to the Father's care, knowing that the Father judges. I love what Ed Clowney says about Jesus here. He died on the tree. He bore our sins. I love what he says. He said, his hands did not grasp a sword, but were stretched out to be pierced with nails. He did not lift a spear, but received the thrust of the spear in his side. He did not come to bring judgment, but to bear it for us. Jesus bears our sins. Jesus bears our judgment. This is all out of Isaiah 53, by the way. All these verses here, these last few. Bore our sins that we might die to sin, but his wounds, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd of your souls. How is it possible to honor everyone? Not disagree with everyone. I mean, sorry, not agree with everyone. The Bible is filled with calling sin, sin, objectively calling sin, sin. 
but still loving and honoring, or at least the word here is honoring every one. How can we do that? How can we bless those who, this is, this is Jesus, he teaches this on every page of the Gospels. Bless those who curse you. How can we do that? Love your enemies. How can we do that? Because he gave his life so that we could live to righteousness. We were like strange sheep, but we've returned to the shepherd. God is shepherding us back towards him. And I wonder who God's shepherding you back to tonight. Listen, I understand this wasn't an ethics lesson, and I didn't answer every ethical question. And you may be walking out of here with some questions about uh, certain ethical practices. I'm just trying to say, what does this passage say? And while there's... I can't say everything that can be said in the Bible. I I, I tried to say what's here. And here's what I think. I think we would miss it if we wonder, well, what about this? And what about that? I think whoever the Lord is speaking to us tonight specifically about honoring and subjecting ourselves to, we need to concentrate there. There may be questions, but some things are very clear. Do you honor the emperor in your heart? Do you honor your employer and and, and your employees and those around you even when treated unjustly? To those who are reviling, are you reviling back? To those who are, when you're suffering, are you threatening back or are you entrusting yourself to? We know that stuff. The trick of the enemy is to get lost in all kinds of philosophical questions and miss the plain conviction that's right here that I know. So, What's the Lord shepherding you back to tonight, as he says in this passage? Think of the authorities in your life. Young people, think of your parents. Older people think of your parents as well. But if you're under your parents' authority, they're leading you. You don't have your own household. Uh, Are you honoring? And even if you do have your own household, we're to honor in a different way. Not obey, but honor. But if you're under your parents' authority, are you obeying them? Are you honoring them in truth? In honesty, in integrity, are you living two different lives? Are you doing your own thing? Are you honoring them? And how about your teachers at school, your coach? Who are the authorities in your life outside of your family, young people? Is there a heart to honor them even if they did something unfair? Is there a heart to honor and to reflect Christ? How about, uh, how about in your workplace? Your, your supervisor, your boss, the owner of the company, whoever it is, do you, is there an honoring, is there an honest desire birthed from the Holy Spirit to bless your boss, to make your boss a success, to honor your boss, to love your boss? Even when your boss is cutting you out of things, you're bringing stuff to bless him or her. You're speaking well about him or her behind his or her back. Are you gossiping good news, good things? I guess that wouldn't really be gossip, but are you telling good things about your boss to others behind their back? Are you believing the best about your boss the way you want people to believe the best about you? The golden rule. you loving others as you want to be loved. Are you honoring in your heart? And if they're treating you unjustly, are you responding as a testimony so people walking, looking on say, that guy, that gal has a power. I don't know how they do that. There's something different about them. There's something different about them. What is it? Would your lifestyle of the way you respond to your boss cause any unbeliever to question that maybe there's something different about you? How about government? Whether it's local government, state government, 
Yes, we, we should have political opinions. We should be responsible citizens. We should vote, and we should, it's great to campaign for a candidate. I'm not going to do it here, but privately, it's great to campaign for a candidate. It's great to vote your conscience, what you think is right, what the Lord wants you. Yes, be involved. I am not saying be absent from the process. That's the other error, is that the church is absent from the process, and then we complain. Well, we weren't active. But in my heart, can I, can, I, can I detach issues and platforms and agendas? Can I separate that from judging the hearts of people? We must. We must honor those we disagree with. And we must speak. We don't get a free pass to gossip and slander about people just because they're on TV and we don't really know them in person. And by the way, I had to, in the late 90s, completely rid myself. I don't even know. It's not back then. Political talk radio was really big. It was poison to my soul. I had to get it out of my life because I found myself, yeah, 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 getting worked up and agreeing. And I'm being a cheerleader to someone who is spewing judgment about other people, delighting in their failures, laughing at their scandals, rejoicing in their losses. And I found myself doing the same thing. And if that's you with, with blogs, there's certain bloggers that, my goodness, it is poison. Blogs, TV, and I don't care which side it's on. You can be led to sin through Fox. You can be led to sin through CNN. You can be led to sin through any opinion piece that is not fair and objective and fearing the Lord and is just out to get somebody. So if you're like, you may need to find another way to get informed, but shut down the garbage if it is tempting you to, to, to dishonor people. So maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's church, the church. I haven't talked about that at all, but maybe it's leaders in the church. Maybe it's some other organization. I give examples like the soccer coach. Maybe it's the soccer coach that's ruining forever your kid's chance at a responsible adulthood. He's wrecking Junior's life. And I'm going to go tell that coach. This is an opportunity to teach Junior what it means to honor authority. This isn't the time for you to go stomping in there and giving him a piece. It might just be able to say, how do we act like a Christian when we don't get to play as much as other people get to play? What's a Christian look like? You've got an opportunity to model. You've got an opportunity to model honoring the emperor as we watch the debates and vote. You've got an opportunity around the dinner table and the way you speak about your boss to, to set an example for the kids. We've got an example. The way we relate to our own parents, we've got a way to set an example for the kids. So I'm done. I, I just think when, when, when Peter talks about discipleship, it is compelling, it is counterintuitive, and frankly, it is shocking that the first place he goes in application in this letter is submission. Submission to authority in a resistant, hostile world. What do we do? Get more hostile? No, we act like Jesus by his grace and for his glory. And may we be winsome. May our testimony be sweet. May we stand for righteousness, but may we do so in a way that honors others for the glory of God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.